I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and playwright Joseph Caldwell. His uh, new book, it's a memoir, is called In the Shadow of the Bridge, a memoir. In his charming, brutally candid memoir of New York in the 1950s and 1960s, critically acclaimed novelist Joseph Caldwell recounts his bohemian life, his tenure working at WQ. XR, the venerated classical music station, marching in civil protests and being arrested, as well as a tragic love affair that inspired him to become a caregiver during the AIDS epidemic. His book is an unrequited love story that somehow finds satisfying resolution, managing to be at once wryly funny and terribly wrenching. A novelist who was awarded the Rome Prize for Literature by the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Uh, Mr. Caldwell is the author of five novels, in addition to the Pig Trilogy, a humorous mystery series featuring a crime-solving pig. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Joseph. Well, it's good to be here. Well, I I must say, your book is is a Um, page-turner. I I think one of the things that you said, uh, not in the book, but online, um, you said that you were born to be a writer. I mean, that was your gift that you had, that you had nothing to do with it. But your responsibility was to fulfill that gift, to to be responsible and and to write. So let's start from there, because you've written many books. and I guess I'm at what point or when did you realize that? How old, you know, how young, when did you realize that, hey, I do have this gift for writing and I need to do this? Oh, yeah. Well, I began writing what I called poems when I was in the fourth grade. And of course, it would be a sort of rhymed, you know, rhymed lines and everything like that. I'll give you an example of uh, what I was up to. And this is, I'm, I'm quoting now from the poem, the first lines from the poem I wrote to my mother for Mother's Day. And it was, when in disaster, no one could get there any faster. Now, it doesn't get much better than that when you're in the fourth grade, right? So I started then. And then I wrote my first novel when, I think it was between the sixth and seventh grade. And I I may mention this in the memoir. I've sort of forgotten what I've said and what I haven't said. But uh, uh, I wrote the novel, and it had a few... uh, similarities to a Robin Hood uh, movie that I had recently seen. So um, uh, so I started out uh, sort of liberally helping myself to other things. But then, then uh, I, I also wrote, uh, when I was in school in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I used to write little plays, and we would perform them in the classroom like that. So I was, I was already doing it then. And, did your uh, fa- did your mother and your teachers uh, recognize your talent? Because you know, four year olds and five—that's quite young, obviously. And then you're talking about you know as you got older and into middle school and stuff. But did they recognize that? Hey, this kid really has an ability to write. Yeah, I think that, well, to some degree, because I remember when I was in the sixth grade, and um, uh, the sister uh, sister uh, Annette. Um, was my, my teacher at the time, and um, and she had me write another verse for a song we were singing. I think it was a hymn, and so I wrote one, and I was quite proud of that. And then when I was uh, when I was uh, in in high school, uh, I was encouraged, especially by my um, uh, my third, my senior year, uh, Father Corcoran. He said to me, "He said you write well," and I thought, 
Well, that's good to hear. So I was, uh, and then, and then of course, when I went, when I was in, in college, I, uh, uh, after I got out of the Air Force and I went to Columbia to finish my degree because I'd only had two years at Marquette. And, um, and my, and my mentor then was, uh, John Gassner. And then, uh, um, this will let you know that I'm the, why I consider myself the luckiest guy I know. And that is that, uh, when he, when he was teaching me at Columbia, he was named the Sterling Chair, uh, at the, given the Sterling Chair in Playwriting at Yale. And he offered me a full fellowship at Yale. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And I said to him, I, it's a graduate school and I, I don't have my BA yet. And he said, in effect, oh, well, Yale doesn't care if you don't care. So I didn't care. And off to Yale I went. And then it was renewed for a second year. And then I uh, applied and I got the third year. So that's how lucky I, I've been. That's it. I, I'm not sure I would call it luck. There are so many people who try and write and write and write, and they never really get off the ground. So obviously you are probably one of the most talented guys or writers uh, that we know. I want to go back to, uh, to you, you mentioned you went to Catholic school and you're yeah. a gay man. Uh, then you were a, a little yeah. boy, a gay little boy. Um, and all how that impacts you being in a Catholic school, going through puberty, realizing your sexuality, how, you know, was that difficult? Obviously, uh, what, what were the feelings that you had then? Because um, some of it must have been obviously expressed in your writing. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, this is a, an important element in the, in the memoir about how I dealt with, how I confronted uh, the, that uh, reality of uh, the fact that I was gay and I was a Catholic, because I make a whole point in, in the book that how I persisted in remaining a Catholic, even though the hierarchy uh, did everything they did to throw me out, because they kept saying uh, I was an abomination, there was this, that, and the other thing. And I didn't belong in the human family because that was the way they talked about gays in those days. When I came to, you know, when I and we're talking about the fifties. We're talking about the fifties right now, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. uh, You know, I came to New York in nineteen fifty, and 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 but but but, you know, I'd already been uh, through two years of college, and I've been in the I've been in the Air Force. And and all during, and then of course I came to New York, but my but the point that I make in the book and like that is that I absolutely, I not only refused to leave, uh, I I I found I found that it uh, that it, well, if I can quote myself or paraphrase myself in the book I say that you know that a, a good argument is a form of intimacy, and my argument with the hierarchy. I think it has been a form of intimacy, and it, and that argument has bound me to the church more than if I uh, if I weren't gay. In other words, my gayness has made me a more staunch Catholic than it might have been if I were, if I were straight. Strange as it sounds, but a lot of things are strange, and that's yeah. one of them. Okay. Well, I guess what you're yes, uh, you're you had to examine your feelings. You have that's true when you come up against somebody who you are in a debate with, and I think, didn't you say you were on the debating team? Uh, you, you get to know that person better. You get to know the topic better. And in this case, the Catholic church, right? So the, it's, you were able to right. reckon. Yeah. Um, okay. So you had an understanding 
nun, um, I guess way back in the beginning. Yeah, in uh, eighth grade, Sister Adelaide. Sister Adelaide. Because I just found, yeah, that was like a very, I mean, that's right in the beginning of the book, but kind of very touching how she sort of was on your side and helping you to realize that, um, what you had a, she protected me. She protected you. She didn't accuse me. She protected me. Yeah. Which is very important. Okay. So then you come to New York city in the fifties, very different than living in Michigan. Um, all of a sudden, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Wisconsin, Michigan, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, it's a whole different arena for you. Uh, you you talk about feeling freer. Uh, part you get your apartment near the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, talk to us about that sort of like that's a I say a whole new beginning, um, which it seemed to me it was for you having read your memoir. So. Uh, here you are, a young man, what, 20 years old, 21? 21, yeah. 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 Well, you know, the, important, the most important thing about when I, came, when I came to New York, up until that time, as I point out in the, in, in the memoir, I had, all the way uh, through life until then, I had no close friends because I couldn't really, you know, when I was in high school and when I, and when I was in the Air Force and everything, I had, you know, friends and everything like that, but they were never really close friends because I had a secret that I couldn't share with them, a, a secret that was that was uh, central to my identity. And so that there was always, you know, a withholding. There had to be a withholding because if I were to reveal myself to them, I would be dismissed. I would be scorned. Uh, I would have been told that I didn't belong in the human family. And... Um, because that's the way it was. You know, people have to, it's changed now, of course, for the better, but it, that's the way it was when I was, growing, when I was growing up. But so when I came to New York, I had close friends. I met other gay men, and it was wonderful, wonderful to have a friend, a real friend I could talk to about anything and everything. And those friends that I've uh, met, that I made in the first couple of years were my friends for the rest of you know, since then, and ended only with their deaths. So that was the great gift that New York gave me when I was starting, and for starters. And uh, and, and there's, there's, you know, that uh, little section in the book about uh, uh, when I was hanging out for, for a, a season with uh, uh, James Baldwin, Jimmy Baldwin. I called him Jimmy because that's what I knew him by, so that's why. But anyway, it was uh, it was remarkable. It was wonderful. It was such a, I, I sort of feel as if my life began in a way then when I could be myself. New York is my home. And, and, and being with and hanging out with James Baldwin and all these talented people, you being one of them, I mean, I mean, just it has to be a real high, obviously. But then there was, was one person, the, yeah, <laughs> uh, your first love. But you know what, the, the, the thing about the, the hanging out with and everything like that, uh, sure, we were we were writers and everything, but we we, we didn't talk that much about writing this, that, and the other thing. With, with all these friendships, our first obligation was to make each other laugh, and we very much succeeded. We amused each other quite a lot, and it was a wonderful thing to experience. And as I just said, what about your? And the, then you you met your your first love, Gail. Oh. The, yeah, Gail was uh, that was um, uh, 
Yes, that's where the book starts. So, where I I met him at dawn on the um, on the Brooklyn Bridge on May twenty fifth, nineteen fifty nine. Oh, and there, correct one thing that you said because um, uh, there was a mistake that was on uh, on the book. I think and when the found uh, galleys went around, and it said that I became a volunteer uh, during the epidemic because I my lover had AIDS. No, that's not true. I I just uh, I wasn't seeing him when I first I, I started. I became a volunteer long before I found out that he. Uh, I think more than more than several years before I had uh, uh, knew that he had AIDS. So that wasn't my motivation. That was my motivation. My motivation for doing it was that I just wanted to do something in the epidemic, and I was uh, I had the good fortune that. Uh, if can put it in those terms. I mean, uh, the fact that I was had a chance to do something because at St. Vincent's Hospital here in New York, they uh, they started what was called the supportive care program, and what that was was that somebody with AIDS would have a a nurse assigned to him, whether he's in the hospital or at home or whatever, like and she would check up on him and make sure he was getting his the treatment that he was supposed to be getting or she, and. Then they would have a social worker so that the labyrinth, uh, you know, so guide you through the labyrinth of the social needs that you would have during the time. But then there was a volunteer. It was sort of a buddy. And that was really to deal with a very important aspect, a sad, sad aspect, as if there weren't enough already. And that is that there was such a stigma attached to the epidemic that if you, once you got AIDS like that, you were abandoned. Families would show you out. Uh, friends would drop you, and everything like that. And uh, and first of all, it would uh, it was a way of outing you because uh, the the, uh, the people who had AIDS were primarily drug abusers and gays, and so people thought, well, they're just getting what they deserve because they're drug abusers or they're gay. And what the volunteer did was to make sure that that aspect of abandonment was not prevalence in their lives, because what you did, you became a companion, you became a buddy. We would do things, go things, watch movies, sometimes eat, just visit, go like that, visit them in the hospital, visit them at home, uh, like that. And and it was a very enriching uh, experience, and I will never cease to be grateful to St. Vincent's Hospital. uh, St. Vincent's Hospital during the AIDS epidemic, which I was also very involved in, involved in from a social work perspective. And I, after I read your book, I, I said, I have to ask you, I have to ask um, Joseph whether or not jo- Dr. Joyce Wallace was very involved at St. Vincent's Hospital. And I wondered if you knew her or were familiar with her. The name work. is familiar. The name is very familiar, but I, I never, um, I never worked with her. Uh, I remember Dr. Shea. Joyce uh, Walls, yeah, she was a physician, an internist who had her house, her office, and then uh, which she treated all, mostly, I mean, all young men uh, w- with AIDS, yeah. and then she lived above her office. But I, and I still think she's in is involved in AIDS research. So I thought, well, I've got to ask you if you knew uh, knew her. But people were terrified because no, they, were ter- they did not they know how. Know the, I, I yeah, um, the one that the one that I was. Um, Somewhat involved with Dr. Nord, and uh, and she would come and talk to us, uh, to the volunteers. 
uh, maybe every six months or something like that to tell us what the research was and what was going on and everything. And, of course, the news was never all that positive. Uh, but it was, it, we were kept uh, aware of what was what was happening. What would you say to young gay men today? Because they are actually, well, this was in the 80s. We've had two generations probably since then, right? And I, I know today from you some talk of a my... louder? Uh, yes. Can you hear me now? Um, Is that loud enough? Catherine? Yes. Can, I'm um, can you talk... talk a little louder? Because... I'm talking... Very loudly now. Can you? Is that loud enough? I can hear you, but it's a little bit faint. That could be my my line, you know. Uh, but anyway, I, we'll do the best we can. Yeah, I hear you perfectly. So okay, it's a good start. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you're coming across loud and clear. Yeah, I hear you. So, um, so okay. Yeah. Now I can hear you better. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about gay, young gay men today, which is probably two generations from when, you know, from the 80s, uh, who somewhat uh, are, are somewhat cavalier about not using condoms, not being careful, not being aware because they feel like there are drugs and medication that, you know, it's a chronic disease, but not something that's going to kill you. And that's become an issue. Um yeah, and it is. And, uh, don't get it. I mean, you still have to protect yourself. You don't want to get it. it, it really, and and not only that, but it must be it must be a, a real pain in the neck to, uh, and I don't mean neck to <laughs> live your whole life and have to take all those pills every day and everything. Like, who wants to do that? Just be a little bit careful and take care of yourself. You owe that to yourself. Don't do it. It ain't no what? fun. No, it's not. But what also, what would you say? Because you've had all of this experience, um, like fast forwarding to now, because we don't have that much time left. How have, besides the medical, you know, that we have drugs and medication uh, for HIV, but what else would you say has changed dramatically? I, I, well, I, I would say, I mean, yeah. what has changed the most dramatically is, is the, um, the way that gays are treated and the way they are, I mean, we're no longer pariahs uh, like that automatically. We can be openly, we can be openly gay, and um, and and you can get married if you, if you if you want to. That that is that gives the 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 uh, marriage equality gives a very accurate measure of how far we have come in our approach and our attitudes uh, toward gays with gays. Uh, from what it was when I was when I was younger and when I first came to New York, uh, it's a uh, it's a wonderful wonderful thing. I mean, we're we're accepted in the community. See, before then, like that we were not really a part of the community. They didn't want us. To, we, they didn't think we belonged in the in the community, and uh, that was the most painful part of it. Was that that uh, well? First of all, you had to have a whole secret life, and everyone wants to have a secret life. I don't. I don't. Uh, I want to be generous with myself and I want other people to be emotionally generous with me. So there we are. Yeah, I think the that's the key, and you mentioned it earlier, not having a secret life. If you have to be secret about your life and you're 
a good person living a good life and, and, and you have to be secretive about it and not be able to talk to people about who you, you know, who, who you love or who you're who married you really to. Are. Yeah. And, and who wants who's going to live your whole life not being who you really are? Like that, that's a way, that's how much is wasted, how much is gone, how much is taken from you. So, and how much, that, uh, yeah. So right now, uh, there's a play on Broadway, I think, that covers the, the whole, which I'm going to see this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going yeah, to see it this afternoon. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, it's, uh, in, in a way, uh, uh, I, I very much uh, recognize what it is, because it, it really starts out with that the community, we form a community, as I say in, 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 the, in the memoir, we were sort of a secret society. Uh, among ourselves and everything like that. And then as it became more prominent and everything like that, and then and that what happened in the epidemic was that uh, what we did is that we, we we took care of each other. We didn't reject each other. And that's, and that's in the play. And that's uh, part of its, uh, of its effect. It's a very effective play. It's a, it's a real thing. I, I took, it's two three-hour plays. And I took, so three hours in the afternoon and then three hours that evening. So uh, it was, uh, it was well, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Well, I'm going to see it this afternoon. It We've got 30 seconds left. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. And well, am I uh, to thank you. Yep. And well, the, the title of your memoir is In the Shadow of the Bridge, a memoir. You can go online. I assume you can buy it online or bookstores everywhere. Thank you so much, Joseph, for being on the show again. Well, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. Okay. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm.